our current class of Gravel Pro, right? The people who have really kind of stepped into it over like the last two years are not results above all else. Like it is relatability. It's having fun and being a person that happens to race a bike instead of a bike racer that happens to be a human, which is why I'm not doing the world tour anymore. That's where the gravel ethos lies. And that's what drew myself and I'm assuming you to it. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. You've been living in a dream world, Neil. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we talking about practice. They peed on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McKelvin. Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. We finally got Pete Staten on. It seemed like in light of Leadboat, which we participated in together, Leadville 100 one day, Steamboat Gravel the next, it was kind of uh, the perfect opportunity to sit down and share some notes. We talk about Leadboat, of course. Uh, We also don't shy away from the contentious topic at hand right now in gravel riding, which is consuming social media and news outlets, which is uh, the use of male domestique riders by uh, some of the top female riders in gravel gravel events. What does it mean? Is it an issue? Uh, is it being blown out of proportion? What do we think it means for the future? All that sort of thing. But really what we spend the most time talking about is Pete's past, um, his transition from world tour racing to the style racing he does now, what it's been like to make that transition professionally, personally, all that sort of thing, the learning curve of it. And we also discuss his really harrowing crash in 2015 tour of the Basque Country that just completely destroyed his leg and threw his entire future into doubt um, and how the lingering effects of that still guide his life as an athlete and person to this day. A big thank you to SRAM, Zip, and Rock Shocks for supporting this show. Uh, the last couple of weeks, you've heard me talk about their new Explore line. We've talked about the Zip 101 wheel. We've talked about the Rock Shocks Rudy fork and their dropper post. And today, I want to touch on the new SRAM gravel-specific drivetrain, Explore drivetrain, which comes in three options. SRAM Red, SRAM Force, and SRAM Rival, each at different price points, each uh, with a lot of shared technology, but some few differences as well. Some kind of highlights, new things in regards to this drivetrain, things that I'm really enjoying. Um, They have this really slick direct mount chainring, which makes it really easy to change your gearing. So the chainring options are 38 tooth, 40, 42, 44, and 46. Typically for racing, I'd run a 46, but because this bike build that I have my Explore parts on right now, uh, this checkpoint, because I have more adventure oriented and bike packing and, you know, really challenging off-road single track style riding in mind, I'm running uh, the smallest 38 tooth chainring, which I was a little bit worried about might hold me back some on on really fast pavement stuff, but it really hasn't been the case. Um, in the back, there's a 1044 cassette, and that 10 tooth cog just really proves to be uh, such an awesome asset. I actually did this really diverse multi-surface ride yesterday that involved a bunch of really steep, sandy, loose 
climbs. Um, and I wasn't wishing for any lighter gear at any point. The 3844 was plenty on the light end. Um, but when I popped out on this flatter highway section, really high speed paved, a little bit of a tailwind, um, even in the drop bars that I'm running on this bike right now in anticipation of a big bike packing ride coming up, you know, sitting, sitting on 30 plus miles an hour for extended periods of time, I did not get spun out. The 3810 was still enough. And I was just reminded how awesome one by drivetrains are these days. There's the gear range is just so massive. Um, really, really cool. So anyway, that's the new SRAM Explorer drivetrain. Go check it out. Like I said, it comes in in three options, red, force, and rival, all axis-oriented. That's RAM super sweet wireless electronic group. And one really fun thing that I discovered with the help of uh, the folks at Mountain Bike Specialists here in, in Durango is that if you run the axis reverb dropper post that's part of this group as an option, you can set it up so that your shifters, when you hit them at the same time, actually actuates the dropper post. So it's just this super clean, slick setup where obviously left shifter, go into an easier gear, right shifter, harder gear, hit both. It'll uh, actuate your dropper post. Just love how gloriously integrated technology is getting these days. Check it out. That's the new SRAM Explorer drivetrain. Catch y'all at the end of the show. It sounds like you've had a stressful stressful few days or basically ever since lead boat it sounds like it's been kind of stressful to be honest it has you know this i had this six week road trip plan right so it was supposed to be copper triangle lead boat uh bc mixed with like a little break with the wife so all the the national parks on the way up to bc and then rebecca's private idaho and down to my pater and like you know some four thousand mile road trip and i was like the van has to be sweet and literally like everything is breaking on it. Like, I think there's like six codes going now. <laughs> and I'm like, it's kind of this moment where it's like, do I just kind of like keep pushing through because it's like generally running or, and cause you know, now that I'm up here and the race is canceled, like, I mean, you've mountain biked BC, right? Yeah. It's, this was like my first time yesterday and it's just like, oh my God. Like, it's insane. I'm, I'm so okay with this race actually not happening if I could just play here for a week, but I can't even do that. Like, I just want to disappear into Revelstoke and all that. But like, I, I finally just like, you know, I even thought of like driving to Whitefish for the last best ride, which is three hours away. And it's just like, you know what? I just got to stop fighting and trying to like make plan B's and just accept it. So I am going to try to drive 20 hours home starting this afternoon um, and if the van makes it, it'll go to the shop and I'll tell them to fix it however long they need and, uh, try to fly or, you know, get Airbnbs and normal hotels at races. Um, uh, but I just say, yeah, there's, there's too much stress levels of like continually freaking out about this. So it's just time to pull the pin and accept reality. <laughs> for sure. For sure. And especially, I mean, you're pulling such a ridiculous schedule too. I mean, you've had six weekends in a row something like that yeah um yeah. and just the, like you said it, the logistics of all that are hard enough as is and then when you're just trying to limp between the two at a certain point you just gotta yeah. fold them i feel like so and even folding them like even the, the road trip right like it was you know we we wanted to do this iconic trip like diana hasn't seen all of these parks so you know it was like teton yellowstone glacier teton was smoked out couldn't see the mountains 
Yellowstone rained the entire time. Glacier, it was so foggy, we couldn't actually see the glaciers. <laughs> so it's like, we're just getting skunked on the whole trip. So I think I, yeah. And you're right. Like, it's just time to, to fold them and just, like you said too, like, I've been busy, you've been busy. It's instead of trying to fight for another thing, I almost feel like you don't gain anything from that. It's just for sure. Recalibrate. Totally. Yeah. yeah I, I was excited and fired up to get back to some good hard riding this week. And for whatever reason, my body is just like, nah, man, like you trained hard going into lead boat and then you race lead yeah. boat and you need to take a deep breath and also reevaluate the plan <laughs> for a minute. So I'm kind of sure. chill chilling right now as well um so who's who's with you is uh diana with you still she is so the whole plan was basically get up to here get to you know bc do a weekend with her family um they've owned this one plot of land like overlooking the columbia river panorama valley for like forever so it's this baller spot um and then as the race started, because, you know, she's got her day job and stuff, um, she was going to fly home and I was going to start this event. So I'm still dropping her off at the airport. Uh, couldn't convince her to, to drive 20 hours with me for some huh, reason. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she's with me, but I'm going to drop her off at the airport in BC and then do the border crossing and try to go all the way. And, you know, it, you also have to do the whole COVID test thing. But we are realizing now that the test that we took to get into Canada because we've been here for s less than three days is actually the same test that we can use to go home. So we're, <laughs> we're all, we're going to be crossing. They're like, wait, you got tested in Bozeman. And I'm just gonna be like, yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> that's funny. Oh man. That really sums things up. Um, that's what you know. Yeah. That's, that's the new measuring stick for a quick trip is can you use the, the same COVID test? <laughs> totally. um, and they're also going to be like why the hell were you here for 24 or 48 hours like um, trust me in, i swear in to god this, in this in this uh kind of beat up big white van no less <laughs> oh totally totally they're gonna search it high and low i mean it's, yeah uh, yeah and as you know the stash won't help um no <laughs> so okay so obviously you know diana is is in in regards to your village she and would you consider like big tall Wayne, maybe the second in line there in regards to like your, your tight crew that, that keeps the Pete Stetna circus rolling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit, little, little bit about him. Um, cause I, he's, he's, uh, quickly becoming a little bit of a, a folk hero. I feel like, like I'm seeing more and more, is. more and more little blurbs on social media about, Oh, here's this really tall, super nice guy that no one knows too much about, but he's always there and yeah. everyone always seems to have a good experience with him. And so I'm finding myself wanting to know more about this guy now and actually meet him at some point. So you should get to know him. <laughs> um, one of the best people I know, period, mechanic or not, just always down to help would actually never ask, uh, anything in return um and a very good handyman in addition to one of the actual best bike mechanics i've ever met um so big tall wayne lives up in wayne smith is his real name but he's, yeah <laughs> he's he's known as big tall wayne like i we are creating a brand around him whether he wants it or not you know um he lives up in Truckee, tahoe area where i am you know spend a lot of my season and um 
as I went down this, this, uh, journey and, you know, I was like, he started helping me with all my bike stuff. And I was like, yeah, you know, you know, you want to start coming to events with me. Um, and he was stoked. Um, and it started out as kind of like a, a low key thing, like, you know, just kind of like day hire, you know, I'd throw him some, some B money or, or some day hire money. Like if he would come make sure it didn't cost him anything for his travel, but it just, it became way too fun. He's basically my beer drinking buddy who I want to just travel with. And I realized how his actual dream since he was like 15 was to be a pro bike mechanic. Hmm. And he actually did like the USA cycling mountain bike team, uh, you know, with some of the juniors, I think he was like in Europe with like Keegan and Finsty and Kerry Warner and all these guys. And he got pretty disillusioned with the whole thing. Uh, pretty turned off by the experience, gave up, went back to Tahoe, was service manager at a bike shop. Um, but now he's really enjoying it. So, um, to make it, to make ends meet, you know, I basically am, uh, fully brought him on now. Um, I, I decided to, you know, make sure, you know, cause how I'm sure you do it and I do it is, you know, I have like my sponsor money and all that. And I have a budget and I pay myself, you know, a little salary out of that to make, you know, make the mortgage happen. Um, I've decided to start paying myself less and pay him a salary to make it actually viable for him. So it's a, a legit career for him as instead of just him following a dream for a season until he has to get real. So, um, and, and in addition to that, I kind of started like brokering him out to events and sponsors and stuff, uh, just to, you know, if he, if he was able to, to double dip just a little bit, you know, and, and make it more financially viable for him. Um, because he's down to help everyone. I mean, people just start coming up to, up to him at races and be like, Hey, could you look at this? Could you help this? And he would always say yes anyway. So, you know, for example, at Oregon trail, you know, they set him up at an aid station when he wasn't working at my, on my bike at the finish line. And, you know, he was down to help everybody and he got like a little day higher rate from them too. And Canyon likes him so much. They started freaking bringing him to events without me. <laughs> so now I'm like, I got to fight for him. Um, it's like, uh, it's, it's going to be a uh, betting war all of a sudden. <laughs> it is. And he's done so well that, you know, I think he's finally getting the credit he deserves, but he's honestly, he's just living his dream and he is so stoked to be doing all this stuff. And for any of your listeners, I mean, if you see him at an event, this is by no means a uh, a uh, exclusive thing. Like, you know, if, if you need help, he ain't going to turn you down. And if you got, you know, a 20 in your pocket or some beer, you know, share the love back. But he is just so excited to be doing this. That's cool. Um, how did y'all originally get linked up? Was he a mechanic on, on some sort of race trip for you or something just peripherally or how did that happen? Uh, Keel Reinen. So okay. Wayne, Wayne lived in, in Boulder, uh, as, and I'm from there and we were always like one degree separate, but we never actually met. Um, but, uh, he was a good friend of Keel. So pre tour California one year, uh, 2016, I want to say, I was doing this uh, big training ride and Keel was at my house. We were doing altitude camp. Um, and he's like, oh, my buddy wants to tag along one day. And so, and it was Wayne. And we kind of just made the connection there. And then just being Tahoe people, we kind of quickly became good friends up there. So Yeah, nice. Yeah. That actually, that brings up another question. Um, your home address is Santa Rosa, I think, yeah. right? 
Yeah. Yep. Um, but you grew up in Boulder. It seems like a little bit of an interesting move to move away from such a professional cycling mecca uh, that, that Boulder is. Um, I know you've been in yeah. Santa Rosa a pretty good while, but um, what prompted that and why why have you stayed there? So, yeah, you know, I one of the few that were born and raised in Boulder. You know, everyone else moves there to be a pro, and, and I'm the guy that left. Um, that is fully due to my wife, Diana, um, in the best way, you know, so we met young, um, you know, between high school and college. Um, and she's a very motivated and independent and strong driven woman. Um, she has her own career. She's a civil engineer. She's way smarter than, than me. You know, she's the smart half of this relationship. Um, and, she wasn't going to go do the, the racer wife thing in Europe, you know, not to knock it, but you know, that's, that's a thing. It's, you know, girls yeah. travel with the husband over, they live full time in Europe um, and they're happy doing it, but Diana wasn't going to do that power to her. She wants her career. Um, and it was during 2010, I think she graduated and, you know, there was a little bit of a recession going on. Boulder was on a hiring freeze. Um, even if someone retired, uh, they would divvy out the job, like within the city, for example, to someone who was there. And I said, okay, you know, like we can leave, but you know, I got to do my job too. I was in the world tour, a Neo pro, um, you know, no Chicago, no Ohio, like bike friendly places. So we looked all over the U S at jobs, um, you know, the blue Ridge States on the East coast, the whole West, um, you know, and, uh, and we found this job in Santa Rosa that, happened to be her, her best choice. And I'd been there for a training camp before. Um, and I knew Levi Leifheimer lived there and it was just hell yes. So we just straight up packed up a U-Haul and went, um, and, and we love it. You know, it's, it's home now. I think Santa Rosa is the best road riding in the U S I really do. Like the yeah. amount of roads is absolutely insane. The variety. I mean, Levi is a good friend and he, he did not have, the excuse I had of a significant other, like he just chose the best place that he had ever found in the U S to ride a bike, a road bike. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, I mean, so, I've, yeah. I've seen, I've seen some of that firsthand. I, it seems like, so I, I typically in, in February traditionally will base, um, in the Marin, like mill Valley area and you kind of ride yeah. Northish a little bit and, and hit all the Bellinas, you know, Fairfax, mm -hmm. Uh, type stuff it seems like if you come south it that's within you know a long loops worth of riding as well for you right is that fair to say yeah we we do hit the marin stuff like the good marin stuff on like a six hour day okay. um but we actually touch a lot more north so you know the nice thing with santa rosa is you can ride 360 degrees so like kind of the south is like those Petaluma rolling hills, like the Chileno Valley that you would probably hit. Like we'll cross paths there a lot. And like, that's more like Flatlander days. But West County is just, you know, deep redwoods, coastal, highway one, steep ass climbs. Um, yeah. Kind of the same style as that fish rock race you and I did. Totally. Um, and to the north, I mean, you have, and over towards Napa, you know, there's a massive mountain range between Santa Rosa and Napa um, called the Mayacama. And it's, I mean, you can climb from 20 minutes to an hour on 20 different climbs. So yeah, there's, there's a lot going on out there. Speaking of training, um, I want to dig into your world tour background a little bit in a minute, but um, 
as you made that transition professionally from the structure of the world tour to being a more self-guided athlete, um, Mm -hmm. what was that, what was that transition like from a mindset standpoint in regards to performance? So by that, I mean, like how has your training evolved? You know, you don't have these team mandated training camps anymore where you're going yeah. to Tenerife or, or wherever else you don't have that yeah. structure. You're, you don't have the other rider, the other best riders in the world to train with, you know, half the year. Um, what was that transition like? Um, I would actually love to just like sit down and have a beer with you about this sometime, because I think <laughs> you and I see it very similar. I think we do a lot of similar angles. Um, and I think you can relate that in this, you know, the um, independent realm that we work in is training is only half the job, really. I mean, it's yeah. and it's kind of built around other obligations, whether it is, you know, interviews, photo shoots, um, setting up other business opportunities, whatever it is. I mean, it's, you know, 10 hour days on the reg. And, and there's a lot of other angles that go into making a successful racing calendar besides just training. Um, and that was a mental switch at first because in the world tour, it's just your job is your body and you just have to pedal it fast and everything else is taken care of. And it's a very, it sounds negative, but it's a very selfish existence. Um, because that's all you have to do, um, to be a successful gravel racer, mountain bike racer, whatever. I think there's a lot of more irons in the fire and, it's more lifestyle based. So it's about, um, you know, focusing on the bigger picture and being approachable and just being you. And, you know, if you happen to do really well at a race, that's great. But, um, you know, so that's, that's been the biggest adjustment was learning the business sense and basically a trial by fire in all of that. Right. Um, and I, it's something I've really enjoyed. I think I'm actually more interested in the business of cycling and the industry now than actually just racing that said, you know, my angle coming over was gravel's legit. It is high end racing on its own. It doesn't need to be called alternative anymore. And I'm going to focus solely on it. Like I'm going to treat it like I'm racing professional. I still have a, a high capacity. And by all means, you know, when I stepped away from the world tour, I was in my prime. So, I'm still treating it like that. You know, I, I want to, that's kind of my way of giving it the credit it deserves. For sure. For sure. No, that's well put. Um, if you had to, I don't want this to sound like, I'm going to cut you off real quick too, because I just want to say that I feel like this is actually like a moment of legitimacy in my little privateering adventure is actually being on the adventure stash podcast (laughs) because i am a regular listener and i've been waiting i'm like when the fuck is Payson gonna give me my invite and now i feel like i've made it so thank you (laughs) that's funny dude to be honest so going back to the whole workload thing um Uh your non-invite has nothing to do other than just pure <laughs> workload and keeping up with the treadmill. I literally said to my my girlfriend, Nicole, the other day, thank God it's Friday because this is the last day that normal people will be asking for meetings and phone calls and answering emails. 
And then mm-hmm. I can spend Saturday and Sunday like catching up and getting ahead on all of that stuff and emailing and, and doing all of this office work when everyone else is off for the weekend. And I'm sure yeah. you can relate to that. Like there, there is no weekend. No, even, I, even when you don't have a race weekend, there is no, there is no weekend off. I'm finally getting it. And Diana kind of put it really succinctly the, the other week. She's like, there's two things. She's like, I really hope someday you can just fully clock off because I made some comment about like, same thing, like, Oh, thank God. I can't wait for the weekend. Or I, it was like five or six o'clock. So people had stopped answering emails. And I was like, you know what? I just need to like turn off and not answer to requests that are coming in. And she's like, I, I, I hope someday you can like appreciate this and realize like how the, like other people operate because it's actually good for your mental health instead of just always replying, always replying. Yeah. Well, the, the slippery slope of it for me, and I have to assume the same as for you is that the harder you work, the more payoff there is. Like if you, if you have three hours to put together some sort of creative proposal for some sort of project and you have enough experience to send it to the right people, there's like a 90% chance that that's going to pay off in a month or two. And when you're on long bike rides constantly too, your creative mind is just always going. And there's so much inspiration around us from other riders. And the sport has splintered into so many directions that for me, I'm just constantly inspired. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when you're a very achievement oriented individual that has had to be, you know, self-motivated throughout your entire life, it's almost like a, it's just this impossible phobia in a way of being fearful of missing out on an opportunity. And so you just keep driving, keep driving, keep driving. So that's been my experience. And and I'm not surprised to hear that the same has been the case for you. Words out of my mouth. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it's, it's really hard to say no and you want to keep, you know, creating that. And, and yeah, I mean, yeah, you said it best. It's, it's true. All of it. So all, all that said, what I was going to ask earlier, this is a little bit of like a BuzzFeed type question. Um, so you don't have to take it too, too seriously. But um, your your career in cycling has sort of had two phases, world tour, and mm-hmm. now whatever the heck you want to call what we do now. They each have had upsides, each have had downsides, um, things that you love, things that you don't like. Um, if you are day one of your career and you're given a, given a choice, you're going to do one or the other for the next 20 years. Um, could you make a decision in a weird hypothetical universe like that? Oh, I, yes. I mean, I can tell you now that the P you're talking to now, a hundred percent, I would do this. I mean, I have had people tell me I've been able to be myself unapologetically. I've been able to, um, I, I smile more than I ever have, you know, <laughs> and all that. Like, I love this. And in the world tour, when I did step back, I had maybe another two-year contract in me, you know, because Diana and I, you know, it's she didn't come live in Europe with me. So, um, you know, I was, I was maybe you know, another two-year contract. And then, you know, I'd want to be more U.S.-based. I'd want to, you know, we want to start a family someday and all these things. And now that I'm doing this, I'm like, hell, like I could, I can do this till I'm 40, no problem, 45. Yeah. Like as long as I'm enjoying it, because I'm enjoying 
riding in this whole game more than I ever have. That said, you know, the, the 20 year old Pete, I mean, coming out of the, the Lance Levi, you know, it's, you know, the Tour de France was, and still is the pinnacle, you know, and that's always the dream. And, you know, I, I pushed for that and was that anal reclusive road racer for what, a decade, 15 years. And, um, and I also realized I wouldn't be able to have the stance I have now without that history, you know, like we all kind of have our, our own story and backstory, right. You know, like you are, you're the mountain bike cowboy doing all this stuff. And, and, you know, Ted King is the, the godfather of gravel and Colin Strickland is this tinker counterculture. And there's all these cool <laughs> characters in gravel. And I am the, the guy who gave up the, what everyone is told is the Holy grail for this dream, you know? And, and I realize I would not have the same validation from the industry if I hadn't done what mm. I've done before. Yeah. Fair. Mm -hmm. That's well put, but I'm much happier now. I'm so glad I'm in this space. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Speaking of the world tour, um, are you okay touching on your just unbelievably horrific crash from 2015? Yeah. Oh yeah. So yep. Pice Vasco, uh, is that Basque mm -hmm. country? Is that the same race? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, it's Week long, week long stage race, Basque Country of Spain. From what I can tell, one of the most challenging, climb intensive week long stage races there is. Sounds super, mm -hmm. super hard. Um, you were racing in 2015. I think I saw it was stage three, and you just had this unbelievable crash in the finishing straightaway, um, involving just a dismal course design situation. Yes. Um, can you please describe the circumstances, what happened, um, and how that's affected, maybe how it did affect your relationship with the bike and racing and whether it still affects your relationship with the bike at all in any way? Completely. Um, you know, it was, yeah, I, Phase back 2015. I want to say it was actually stage two, but basically okay. we went over this massive climb, uh, like a cat two climb, you know, a couple miles from the finish, rip and descent uh, in a sprint flat finish in downtown Bilbao, which is the capital of the Basque country, big industrial city, uh, reduced group, maybe like 60 ish guys. Um, and, you know, I'm not a sprinter. So it was just get pack time, wait for the next day. Um, it was my last race before attempting to lead the team at Tora, California, you know, as the story goes, I was hitting the best numbers of my life and all that stuff. <laughs> and, uh, we come around the final corner on this, the, the main drag main street, basically. And instead of fences funneling you into the finish and keeping the fans out, there was none of that really until very close to the line. It was just open road. Like anyone could have walked out and, there were these metal parking bollards in it, like sitting about, you know, three feet out into the road to keep cars from parking in front of a trash can or something. And, um, last minute, uh, a motorcycle cop had obviously seen, seen it and they just put an orange cone on it. Like nothing else, you know, no hay bales, no whistle, nothing. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the lead out is full speed. The sprinters have their heads down, you know, going all out. Um, they look up last minute, see it, 
swerve out of the way and just me being in the pack without a field of view, like just, it opened up in front of me, no reaction time. So it was basically 40 miles an hour, uh, metal pole directly to the kneecap. So it exploded the kneecap, cracked the tibia from the plateau all the way down to the foot, uh, LCL five ribs. Um, I ended up being in critical condition and not critical, but unstable in the, the Spanish hospital for two weeks until I was stable enough to fly home to the U.S. and get some uh, real eyes on it uh, because, you know, all we had was the team doctor there. So um, it kind of relied on me, actually, to like, you know, they had me on morphine. It was a big trauma. Um, and I was trying to translate Spanish Basque into English to relay to the team in the U.S. what the actual situation was. <laughs> um, so they weren't really sure and trusting on what had happened. The only thing we knew, because I was on BMC at the time, one of the superpower teams that era, um, that um, it just so happened that the hospital I had ended up in was an amazing trauma center. So they were like, yeah, you know, we can transfer you to this other city where this super doctor works on like the FC Barcelona players, but he's like, honestly, it's such a bad break. Like they're going to do just a good a job. So don't transfer, just do it. Yeah. Um, so they do the surgery and they keep watching me um, until I'm stable enough to fly. You know, you have to be worried about clots and all that. Diana finally gets there. Um, and, and if you, if you have time, actually the story of getting home, this is a good, good one. Um, I read that it was I, four days. <laughs> right. So I finally get the, uh, I finally get the release, you know, and we're, so, we're over the moon and BMC pulls all these strings to have me like on first class with the lay flat bed, you know, and all that to get, there's a direct flight from Paris to uh, uh, Salt Lake city where the team has Dr. Eric Hyden, a renowned doctor, Max Testa, a renowned doctor, and they can look at everything but I have to get from Basque country to Paris. And so we get discharged and we're in a hotel for the night. And because it's the Basque country, it just so happens that there's a Michelin star restaurant in the hotel <laughs> lobby. So, and it's like $50 for the meal, like the full thing. And so we have this great meal, you know, and I'm on the crutches though, and the leg is swelling and you're on a bunch of medication. And um, so we get discharged and we get to the, the airport in Bilbao. You know, it's a little like puddle jumper plane just to get like the hour up to Paris. And we get there like three hours early. We know it's going to be a hassle. Like I'm in a wheelchair. Diana has like all the bags, right? Like all my stuff from Europe trying to get home, all her stuff because she had flown out emergency. And and she's like five foot two, like petite little girl <laughs> carrying all this crap. And um, And we get there and they're like, oh, yeah, you can't get on the plane. And we're like, what are you talking about? Like we bought first class like you said we could there's a doctor's note in your file saying it's okay for him to take this and they're like oh yeah well the only uh seat with extra leg room because my leg is stiff as a board right it doesn't bend at all straight out um is the exit row and you obviously can't man an exit row <laughs> and there's like 20 people on the flight <laughs> and we're like whatever like we will buy an entire row and I'll just sit sideways. Like, you know how people sleep on airplanes all the time. And they're like, yeah, you can't do that. And it, it becomes a fight and it goes to the point where they pull out a, like a printed manual of like the regulations for this airplane. And there's a rule in there saying, 
if you are obese, you may purchase an extra seat to accommodate yourself. If you have an, an immobilized or fused leg, you may not. So they like straight up just discriminate against like people with certain handicaps. Like if this was in the US, they'd be a class action lawsuit like yeah. that, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're just, we're SOL. Um, a team massage therapist is Basque on BMC. So he ends up renting a car. And this is like, you know, we've been there at like lunchtime. This is now like almost midnight. Renting a car, um, picking Diana and I up, driving us over the border into Bordeaux, France to get the high speed train to Paris. Um, we get to this seedy ass motel super late. I'm in the back seat. My leg is swelling. We get like five hours of sleep, get to the, the train station the next day. The train station, again, not very helpful. The workers don't want to help us. Uh, the massage therapist, like we are like picking me up, like over the railroad ties and like down these stairs to get to like the handicap access, which is not easy to get to for the handicap access. And we last people on the train, like the doors are closing, but we make it like, I give them like a hug through the window. Right. And so we get to Paris. We've already missed our original flight from Paris to Salt Lake city. So we're already delayed in a day. Um, there is an airport right in the terminal. Um, so we stick out of sleep in the terminal at least. And then we get all the help with, you know, handicapped special privilege to get, you know, through security the next day we get on the flight. Problem is now that I've been so delayed and you're worried about blood clots with the surgery, um, I don't have enough medication left. Oof. So I have to start rationing my blood thinners because I don't <sighs> want to clot on the flight. So we're like delaying and like going over when you should actually give yourself the shot and I get to the point where we are on the I mean it's first class so you know you you put the leg out straight you put your your um your little window shades up so there's like a wall and then as we're like finally starting to like take off so I know it's like not going to be another delay you know you have to wait till you're actually like taxiing and like taking off I have to whip out these, these syringes and inject myself in my stomach <laughs> as we're flying <laughs> with Dude. blood thinners. Oh. <laughs> like oh if, if anyone had looked over, they'd be like, what the, you know? Um, <laughs> so that was, but, but we got home, you know, and the doctors saw me um, oh, and man. they, uh, and they kind of said the, like, we have to see how, how the bone heals. You know, it's uh, if the bone dies, you know, we're going to amputate. You Fuck, will probably walk dude. again. Um, I think you heard the, people... you heard those words. You heard amputation as a possibility. Yeah, Fuck. yeah. Um, and it was like we just have to see, you know, if if the bone heals, you know, because it was cracked from the tibia down, right? Like in the like the marrow, like the origin of the bone. Um, and if if that part dies, it's a whole host of problems. Um, <sighs> and a lot of people, I think, wrote me off at that point. Um, and, uh, yeah. So then I began, uh, my back was against the wall. It was a contract season. Um, I was out. Oh, of that was a contract here. Oh my God. Yeah. So things had been going really well with BMC at the time. And to this day, I mean, that was the most professional team I've ever ridden for. They took care of me, got me all the way home to the U S like that. Um, flew Diane out. They were great to me. However, conversations had been going well. You know, I had had a really nice spring leading up to that. We were talking renewal. Um, 
it obviously stalled. They had just dealt with uh, Taylor Finney's accident, eerily similar mm-hmm. to mine within a mm-hmm. year of each other. And it kind of became a wait and see thing. So I basically had to treat my, uh, my rehab like it was training. I said, like, look, I'm still on payroll for a little bit until like, even if they wanted to, they could contractually cut me off. You need, I think there's a UCI rule where it's like three or four months of, um, paid, Injured, uh, paid yeah. injury leave, I guess. Mm. Um, and so my back was against the wall. So I started rehabbing like it was my training at the physical therapist, five days a week, homework, trying to salvage my career. I wasn't over it yet. And it was also, even if I never raced again, I wanted a functioning leg. So it was like, this was my excuse to actually get the help I needed as a pro athlete that may not be available to people with a normal nine to five. Um, and after three months I got weight bearing and I had just got enough flexion in the knee. Right. So like, basically it's every day they're just like breaking down the scar tissue and that fusion. Yep. And it's just pain tolerance until unbelievably you unbelievably excruciating. Yeah. It is. I've had, the it, most I've had it in my, el- I've had it in my elbow and it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced. I can't imagine it in a leg. Yeah. And That's as insane. you know, like some days, some days you get like a degree and some days you get nothing, you know? So it's just, it's this slow process. And eventually I got enough flexion to get over a pedal stroke. Um, as I started to move, you know, metal started to poke out of the joints that was fused in. So I'd have to go in for a surgery and they'd clip like a nail out, you know? Um, and I got to the point where I could get over a pedal stroke and it was three months. So I officially got weight bearing. So I rode my bike for three weeks and I started the tour of Utah. Jeez, and dude. I finished the tour of Utah and that was enough to convince Trek that like, you know what, if you can finish the tour of Utah like that, uh, we believe in you and you can. And so they gave me a lifeline contract, minimum salary, one year deal but I got a race 2016 with Trek. Um, you know, I did that nice stage in California on Gibraltar. I made the tour team. Um, and so I, I spent another three years with them after that four years total, which was, you know, I was proud of that. Yeah, seriously. Um, do you still feel consequences from that crash? Like, what does that leg feel like now? Uh, all the metal is out and I'm no doctor. I can't give this, uh, to anybody, but I think it, it felt instantly better when all the metal comes out, whether it's a collarbone or, or anything, um, it just feels like there's not something in there. And I don't, I know it sounds hippy dippy, but I, I believe it. And so I am all natural now. Um, there is a knee replacement in my, my near future. They basically hmm. were like, look, cartilage is all the way cracked through that said, I got super lucky that the joint groove stayed smooth. And so, um, you know, cycling, there's not all these movements like soccer or something or running, like it's just up and down, you know, your knee moves up and down. And as long as that joint groove is smooth, there's no pain. So the one sport that injured me is kind of the only sport I can do now. I mean, I'll yeah. do some hikes, but there's no running. There's no soccer with kids someday in my future. Um, there's a knee replacement and, um, but I mean, everyone gets a knee replacement and by the time, like. <laughs> I need it. I'm hope there's going to be a Harry Potter pill where we just regenerate, you know, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. mentally there's definitely, Oh, and there's like weird nerve. Like there's a lot of numbness still 
Like if I get like an itch on it, like I'll scratch like a part of my calf and it fixes it. <laughs> Weird. Interesting. Huh. it's Yeah. pretty dead in there. Um, you know, mentally, I think, and that kind of goes back to your original question is it changed me after that. You know, I, I saw certain things differently. I took certain things at a different value. Um, racing isn't the end all and be all. Um, yeah. And, and, and in the Peloton, I could risk it when I really had to, uh, for a, a certain finish or a, into like the uphill climb, but not just randomly with these young guns that are just like, you know, a hundred miles out, just, I'm going to send it on this downhill because I want to make spaces and put everyone at risk. So And because I haven't had a, a appendage threatening crash in my career exactly. yet. Once you know, Yeah. it's on the other side of that, I think it, it, uh, holds you back a little bit in Yeah. a good way, but For sure. Yeah. <sighs> That's heavy, man. Um, it is 1020. I need you're trying to get out for a bike ride. We haven't talked about lead boat at all. <laughs> Let's talk about lead boat, man. I'm yeah, it's, it's all We good. can, we can keep it, we can keep it fairly brief because you have uh, a grow trip um, that you write for Velo Yeah. News out. Uh, folks can find that on velonews.com um, for more in-depth review. Um, I don't even really know. It, it's funny sometimes when you try to ask, it's easy to ask questions about things you don't know about. And I just follow my own curiosities. But because Yeah. we we live lead boat so <laughs> shoulder to shoulder, like I don't even really know how to approach it necessarily. Yeah. Um, one thing that did catch my attention was you you said that it was as hard as any two days of bike racing you'd ever done, Yeah. counting you know World Tour Grand Tour. Um, what made it that way? Would you say? I think it's the fact that in one day races, it's all on the line. And you and I had to line up against guys that were solely focused on Leadville. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you treated it the same. Like you and I both kind of treated Leadville like just you go all in on that, first Totally, of all. for sure. Um, and but then we had to line up in Steamboat against more people, probably a deeper field. And Yep. They were all fresh and chomping at the bit. Um, and I think there were a few riders who I, and Colin will tell you straight up, like, I think they tried to make it hard early to put Yeah. us on the back foot because they knew that we were fatigued. Um, Dude, there was that moment, I'll be honest with you, after the the first significant KOM when there's that kind of oh, God. rolly pavement stuff where you and I got a bit caught out and Yeah. at a certain point we just had to have that little conversation of what are we racing for today and even though even like deciding you know are we racing for Yeah. lead boat or are we racing for a good steamboat result too and even though everyone knew we had lead boat in the legs everyone still looks at you and so Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was you Finsty and me with this group of like 40 behind Yep. no one else would do anything and Colin Ted, everyone else was up the road at like 20 seconds and we were just like, well, shit, this is not what we wanted, but there, there's one job here. Let's just ride hard. I think you were probably better than me on the day. Uh, I, you, you came to me at that moment and you were like, yo, like let's collaborate and shut this down. And I was like, I really don't want to do this. Like I was ready to just focus on lead boat and key off of you. <laughs> and, but it was also like, I can't back down to that. And you're like, yeah, like let's do it. Like let's share it. Um, 
and I was, I was giving up right there kind of thing, but it was like, you know, just keep riding it out. Um, but yeah, you are totally right. It was absolutely hard. Um, and, and I think that's why it was such a hard double day is, you know, these, these extend road races usually aren't that long, you know, and, and in a stage race, everyone is metering their effort a little bit subconsciously. Um, when you just have to like shut up and give in, like, I mean, I don't know for all your followers or if you follow like, you know, the training peaks thing and all that, um, you know, those are both over 400 TSS days back to back. Yeah, same. I don't think, I, think, I don't think I, I've ever done that. Like, I think I had, uh, I want to say Leadville was 450 and, <laughs> and Steamboat was like 430 or 435 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just like to do that back to back, you don't normally, that doesn't really happen. Um, just, so that was very unique. Um, there's a few things that I think play into helping that, you know, and just like that Leadville is so high, it's an aerobic effort. It's a TSS of heart rate, I guess, totally. versus you don't actually have the same muscle damage because you're riding over 10,000 feet the whole time. So your legs can kind of back it up for another day. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm so bummed that our eventual battle never got to materialize because, you know, <laughs> the stash clash was happening. And like you said at best, things break in bike racing. That's just, that's the sport. Unfortunately, it's going to be my turn soon. But, um, <laughs> you know, we were tied on time and, you know, we were kind of looking forward to, it was a unique thing. And yeah, it was going to be interesting for sure. Um, it's unbelievable how hard gravel racing is on bikes. Like I'm really coming yeah. to appreciate that more. Um, it's just this wild in between niche where bikes just get rallied. And even when there isn't a significant oh, yeah. mechanical, if you just look at a bike post race, you know, the amount of weird food and drinks and urine just like caked on the bikes and <laughs> they, they just look awful. <laughs> it's it amazing is. what they put up with. <laughs> the ultimate testing ground i have i am not a heavy rider on my equipment and i have never gone through so much stuff just because like this is all trickle down from road cycling and smooth pavement and it's it's changing but it's like but these bikes are not inherently built to do this and especially the speeds that the guys in the front and girls are pushing them mm. i mean it's more grit gets in those road hubs than ever before, you know, and all that thing, all that stuff. It's, um, yeah, it, when we did mid South in 2020, for example, like without a sponsor, I don't know how I could ever justify doing that because I had to replace Honestly. everything, but the frame and fork, literally totally. everything. Totally. We replaced <laughs> the whole bike. Like that, that frame is just hanging on my wall. And if you nice. like turn the little cup bearings, you, you still hear grit. It's crazy. Oh, um, anyway, do you, do you want to touch on, uh, the latest, um, drama in regards to gravel riding or do you not feel like you have enough, um, opinion formed at this point? Cause I don't really, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm still sort of in the assessment phase, I guess. Um, and I have thoughts, but yeah. if you don't want to address it yet, then I totally understand that. I mean, opinions are like athletes right everyone's got one so yeah. I'm, I'm happy to share my opinion um it's my own and you know i did not 
that this has been a discussion that you and I have heard from our female counterparts for a very long time, you know, and we haven't necessarily seen it being in the front of the men's selection often, but you know, we are good friends with a lot of these, these ladies and you hear about it afterwards and it's been happening for years. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, basically men directly helping certain women to achieve results. And it's a really hard topic just because like, you know, it's, I gravel is, is special because of this mass participation format. And a lot of the women I pulled for my own event, Stetna's Pater, which is prioritizing the women's field. Um, I asked them like, there's prize money here. Like, I don't want some dudes affecting it. Like and taking away from your effort, do, do I start you separately? And the overarching response was no. Like we like the format that said, it's like, yeah, how do you combat that now that the racing is, it's the biggest racing in the US, I think. I mean, that's where the media is, that's where the competition's going. If you don't wanna do criteriums, if you want endurance, you have to gravel race. Um, yeah. And you know, so I just kind of took this this stance with our event that, you know, after hearing this story so much um, that I just got to try to bake it into the rules somehow. You know, it was and, and you know, by this was not a slam at SBT or the event or Tommy D and Lauren at Cinch. Um, I I mean, Lauren is I still hope coming to the pay dirt. She is one of our, our notable females attending. Um, and I've had great conversations with her. Um, so, you know, this was born out of a lot of discussion and I'll admit the timing on that was, um, that had just happened at SBT. And that's kind of why I put it out there just to address it from, from how I felt, even though it had nothing to do with SBT, it was like, you know what, like, you know, this is something that we baked into the rule book. I'm going to put it out there. Um, you know, and it was basically just a little bit of self-policing. You know, it's it's like, you know, if you're riding with a group of guys and you're chopping off uh, male and female, great. If you happen to be the same speed. But there's been stories of, you know, some people like directly, you know, even boyfriends like coming to just ride with their girlfriend and they end up towing them probably longer than they should. Um, yeah. So we're just trying to create the a code. It's not a, a heavy rule, but it's like, you know, kind of like a lot of racing, mountain bike racing. It's just like rule number one, don't be a jerk. Like, you know, race race with honor. And, you know, this is kind of the call. And, and you know, by us putting this ahead of time, you need to think about it. And, you know, if, if we call you out, you're probably going to deserve it. Um, races haven't really put that out yet. So, you know, it's not like you can say anyone's really broken the rules yet, but you know, with our race that could technically be breaking the rules. Um, there's a lot of people that say like, Oh, now you're making rules in gravel and it's, it, it you just can't win. Right. Yeah. Like what's, what's well, that? And, the, and then you, and then you throw into the mix, the fact that the, uh, the forum for this discussion, unfortunately is most typically social media exactly the default way of communicating with each other on social media is just such a a lower level way of communicating and it just makes the the issue worse typically it's it's hip to be offended on social media because then you get attention and that that, that's a greater 
discussion about social media in general. <laughs> but yeah. I, I think, yeah, you know, what's there's some famous quote. It's something, it, this is not it exactly, but it's like, um, perfection is the enemy of progress or something. Mm, yeah, no, you nailed it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's, that's kind of what I feel like. I mean, our, this is by no means a perfect solution and it will evolve, but we're trying. So just, you know, give us a break, kind of believe in what we're doing. If you're not into what we're doing, don't show up, but you know, we're trying. So, yeah. 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 I like to think that a lot of it will be self correcting as well, because I think one thing that's a little bit, well, first of all, I should say, I don't know. I, I, I know that in my opinion, some semi marginally ethical ways of racing have occurred because I've watched them. I've been right next to the riders when it's happened. Has it been as egregious as some people are describing that I, that I don't know. Um, but I like to think that hopefully it'll, in a way it'll be self-correcting because so much of, well, you and I have a job because of the structure of gravel racing, which is inclusion, mass start, mass participation. And we get to be this sort of little like icing on the cake that sometimes gets a greater spotlight and thus has marketing opportunities and, and, and sponsorship opportunities and that sort of thing. But the, the, the meat of the, the infrastructure here is the, the, the amateur riders, many of whom have favorite pros because of who the pros are. Mm -hmm. And when that pro achieves a result, it's great. And they're happy that their favorite rider achieved a result, but the result isn't the only thing. And from an outsider's perspective, it seems like some of this bending of the ethics of gravel riding is 100% focused on the result. Um, And I wonder whether, um, riders and teams that kind of take that attitude if their opportunities will stick around like will sponsors want to associate with that um that's a good question and so potentially i think it'll be a little bit self self self-correcting of course you're always going to have teams where they're where they're backed by you know some sort of wealthy individual or individuals who aren't looking for a true roi but if you or i or colin or someone else were to do something that was ethically out of bounds of like the unwritten code that we're sort of Mm -hmm. adhering to at this point. Um, Sponsors know about that stuff. And at the end of the day, we are ambassadors. Like we are here to help everyone else have a good time um, and inspire and all that sort of thing. And if that basic piece starts to get a little twisted or rotten, um, yeah, I wonder if in a way it'll just kind of be self-correcting, you know, for for the pro echelon. I but. wonder and I hope so. You know, I think um, it does go back to what we talked about in that at least, you know, kind of our current class of gravel pro, right? The people who have really kind of stepped into it over like the last two years are, it's not results above all else, like I said before. Like it is relatability, it's having fun and being a person that happens to race a bike instead of a bike racer that happens to be a human, which is why I'm not doing the world tour anymore, you know, and that's, these races are dead serious. You and I throw down every chance we can get, but we're not sacrificing fun. You know, like I gave you one of those 
those NA beers before the start of Leadville and we yeah. just shot the shit for a little bit, you know, because yeah. it's it's just about having a good time. And that's where the gravel ethos lies. And that's what drew myself and I'm assuming you to it is just this whole thing. And I think the majority get that. Um, there are people who are coming into it because it is so fresh and hot and new and men as well. You know, there's, there's a few men that, you know, a few of us, you know, they talk about kind of behind their backs that like hundred percent, that, that guy is allergic to the wind. Like if he touches the wind, <laughs> his nose is going to break out in hives, you know, like, yeah, yeah. and that's, and, and, and that person is them. never going to be collaborated What what that person doesn't understand is that scenario where they're finally in a position to potentially win. Yes. Say there's, say there's four guys in the yeah. final, the three other guys are going to be riding to make that person not win. It's already ulti- happened. Yeah. Oh really? Okay. Oh yeah. 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 Um, and I don't even want to let, I know, people want to start guessing the name and so I'm not even going to name the race. Um, it's happened. Um, and I hope they learn. Um, and you know, that's, that's also pisses other people off because it's like, Oh, like you guys, just cause you're in the front, like you get to make the rules. And it's like, we're just trying to keep the spirit of what, you know, we really are enjoying right now. Um, the strongest person should win. Yeah. For sure. That's what we I want. think so. And, you know, yeah. there's people who are like, oh, that's racing. Like, well, that's road racing. That's, you know, you use tactics and those backstabbing tactics to succeed, which is fine. That's but currently that's I think why gravel is so popular is it is it's this honorable racing. And that's what drew me to it. Um, you know, and, and even if I wasn't doing well at the moment, like I would still ride like that. Like you and I, we felt like absolute dog shit you know for for <laughs> yeah. most of sbt but yeah. we were rolling through we were chasing like you're gonna go down swinging yeah. and if someone beats you high five you know yeah that's yeah yeah yeah, yeah it will be it'll be interesting and it is interesting how reputation i mean it's a small community at the end of the day it is and reputation is so so important i remember from steamboat i heard all kinds of whispers about a uh a moment that was witnessed where um, there were two riders who ride for the same team. And one of the riders who fancied himself leader flatted oh. his teammate rode by him. And the first rider who flatted just screamed, you better go fucking podium now. And the, oh, the, the other rider slammed on the brakes, ended up giving him his wheel and it was such an ugly, like road racing centric scene. It turned a lot of people off that that hmm. I heard speak about it. Um, and not to make myself out to look like some sort of holier than thou hero, but when I had my wheel issues, um, my he's not a teammate because he rides for his own program, but he also rides for Orange Seal. Cole Patton right. was like, yeah. "Hey, man." take my wheel. Like I've shot all my bullets for the day, take my wheel. And I was like, no fucking way. Absolutely not. Am I not? Mm. Cause you don't, it's a 140 mile race. Like who knows yeah. whether at mile 120, you're going to feel better than me. And also I just don't want to win a race by taking someone else's wheel yeah. or doing well at a race by taking someone else's wheel. And so I think there's, there's all of these interesting little dynamics going on that um, it'll be really interesting to see how they develop different people's attitudes and how that ultimately plays into professional opportunities. Cause there is a certain contingent of folks that have not quite broken into that 
maybe true professional realm um, Mm -hmm. who think that their one avenue to that is results and they're going to do everything it takes to get a result and then they're in. But I don't think everyone quite understands that that's not actually the ultimate. Yeah. Results are secondary in this. It's about being a good ambassador um, for the movement and your sponsor. And yeah, that's hard. And that's why you just can't write a rule book on it too, because it really has to be. And, and it's so hard to say it's governed by ethics and morality because, you know, if, yeah, Cole was very honest, like maybe he was like, dude, like, cause he'd ripped off on that first climb and like put 10 minutes or 10 seconds in the field. And he was, you know, he had obviously gone very hard himself, you know? (laughs) So he probably was over and he's like, dude, I'm just riding like, you're a good friend. I want to help you out, which is honestly, it's in the spirit of gravel. I would not have faulted you if you took you taken his wheel, but yeah. like, yeah, there has to be like a whole story and discussion around that because like that other scenario you just gave, like that's totally not cool. And you just, it's so impossible to navigate this right now. Mm-hmm. I just, I mean, I think Time just deep tell. down people, they, they know what's right. And it's just asking people to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, um, you should go ride. Um, I'm yeah. ha- happy to hear that you are in a beautiful place and uh, no doubt going to go on a fun discovery mission today. Um, yep. But I'm, thr- I'm thrilled that we finally got to do this and I'm looking forward to Me following too. your uh, your exploit. Man, I'm so bummed I'm missing RPI, but enjoy I that for us. <laughs> we need to the, the stash clash has to happen at some point i know it I hasn't know, happened yeah. since you know i get leadville kind of did but it was it was crescendoing i feel so yeah for sure yeah, yeah. it'll happen it we're not going happen. anywhere yet no absolutely <laughs> not that's for darn sure hey your podcast are you doing your uh your beer oriented podcast still are you are you i am driving ahead with um, it i am it's uh it's hit and miss just because it's not sponsored it's it's a yeah. fluff project and, and and it's striking a tone um uh i have a bunch in the queue that have happened but it's you know just dealing with like roaming and the national parks and it just doesn't yeah. make sense to get it out and try to cut it so i would love for it to be more regular but i just um yeah i think uh Gary Erickson of Cliff Bars in the queue. Uh, Tommy Arthur of Lost Abbey Brewery, who runs nice. the BWR, is in there. Uh, just a, a whole host of them. Um, I think I've got like four or five waiting that have actually been done. Um, but yeah, it's basically just exploring that um, that that connection where you know I've met some amazing people because of two wheels, but these people are not masters of the bike by any means. They are masters in a whole other world and the bike was that tool of connection. So I, it's, it's just a good excuse for me to like sit down with like a great brewer and get a drink their beer. But, but. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, called, it's called the draft, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, and you've got a uh, grow trip on Vela news. You have uh, your social media, which is just peace, peace, Stetna. Instagram is peace, Stetna. Twitter is yeah. Peter Stetna fully spelled yeah. out. Um, yeah, so I do, that's probably the best ways to do it is Instagram is probably the most common now, but the Strava, the, the Instagram, the Twitter, um, the road trip is, yeah, it's a running, usually bi-monthly column on Velo news. Um, and just like some YouTube videos, uh, that's where we differ. And I would love to actually get your take on this too, because there's, there's, you know, 
the business of cycling, right? The business of privateering. Um, a lot of you guys, you know, yourself, uh, Phil Game and Ted King, like you have great YouTube channels and you, you own your own content, which is powerful, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of work in that. And I personally have no desire to cut and edit my own movies. I actually kind of build into my deals with my sponsors, like, you know, like you sign up for something cool with me every year, but then, then they produce it, own it, put the budget behind it. So it's more like, I just kind of get a star in it, but we get to do cool stuff together. Um, and I would love to eventually get kind of where you're going, but that's just, that's so much more work that I don't know if I have time for. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the first well, thing about cutting I just, and editing. I really, well, I don't, I don't edit any of it. I, I just, I make films like mini films that I, I am interested in making. Like they don't typically mm-hmm. have too much of a, um, like agenda or baked in mission. They're just like mm-hmm. some sort of personal thing I'm interested in and then and then want to do it. The one exception to that uh, was the original White Rim thing, which was yeah. Red Bull's idea. They yeah. executed it, owned it, etc. Um, at this point, whenever I do something, whether it's, you know, Colorado Trail or the thing we did at Bentonville, um, those I will go to brands when I have the idea and say, hey, I have this idea. Are you interested in supporting it? And then mm-hmm. as part of the budget, you know, work in editing and, and all that sort of thing. Frankly, editing is like cheap oh. compared to the content capture. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But I, at this point, I just sort of mandate that I own it. And and if yeah. if someone wants to license it, then that's really where, um, you know, you can make some money on the back end. And yeah. that's mostly come from uh, paying attention to, to folks in other sports, honestly. Mm. Um, one of the first ever podcasts I did was with um, Sasha DeJulian, um, who's one of the, the top climbers in the world, Red Bull climber. And okay. uh, she has a really awesome YouTube um, series and and... I learned from her the value of owning your own content and then what that can do for you on the back end. So for example, she licensed her entire series to outside TV, um, founded her own production company, all that sort of thing, which sounds scary, like founding your own product. I have my own production company. (laughs) It's paperwork. It's paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. All all it means is you own the content. Like I, I outsource all of the actual work to different production companies. So it's just like stash house productions and matchstick and Mitchell Mitchell films, whatever it is. Right. Um, so it's, it's very much like formalities in a way, but yeah, I want all the listeners to know that Payson said production company with air quotes in the zoom call, but (laughs) (laughs) my, yeah, my stash house productions, right. Totally. Air quotes. Um, I pay, I pay taxes on it, but there's definitely one employee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that is, that's brilliant, you know, and that's something I should definitely pursue. Um, I kind of sit in the middle of that where, where, for example, the Lost Coast video with Wahoo was my idea, but I pitched it to Wahoo. They bit, they basically covered the whole thing, brought their film crew out and did it all. So it's, I'm kind of taking that angle of, you know, in aligning with me, you know, I can bring these ideas and this potential exposure to you, but you know, you got to help me get this thing off the ground. And there's so many different ways to do it, but I definitely realize the power of owning your own. And I just have to decide that. I want well, and there's that, room for but... both. There's room for both yeah. for sure. 
I mean, yeah. I just did a Trek shoot, for example, for a, a new bike, and they're very obviously going to own all that outright. Um, but they look to me for creative direction and all that sort of thing. Mm. So there's, yeah. there's just, you know, it's a spectrum. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. Anyway, let's go ride. Yeah, dude. Thanks for the call. That was fun. Yeah. Pleasure. Have right. a, uh, have a good week between, and I hope you get back on the agenda as planned sooner than later. All right. Talk to you later. Yep. Bye. Bye. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. Uh, a big thank you to SRAM for supporting this episode. Um, I want to tell you about SRAM's all-new Explore drivetrain that is gravel-minded. It is built for gravel. Whatever that means to you, go always is the tagline because it doesn't matter whether your gravel involves very smooth, fast riding, pack riding, racing, or you want to go into some really challenging, slow, technical terrain, single track, bike packing, whatever it is. This new Explore system collection has something for everyone. And I've really enjoyed jumping in with both feet and kind of discovering all that it has to offer. So here's my bike setup right now. I'm running a checkpoint, Trek checkpoint, and on it, I have the new RockShox Rudy fork, and it has 30 mils of travel, RockShox Reverb Axis Dropper Post. And then for the drivetrain, it's a SRAM red drivetrain with a 38-tooth single ring, 1044 cassette in the back. That might sound like a fairly light gear for a drop bar bike, um, but I'm really enjoying just pushing kind of the the more adventure-oriented side of things on this bike right now. And to be honest, a 3810 is still a massive gear. On yesterday's ride, despite the fact that I was tucked into to aero bars, which I have on this build right now in anticipation of some bike packing, a uh, little bit of a tailwind, flat highway section, aero bars, sitting on 30 miles an hour for long periods of time, um, I still wasn't geared out. I didn't get spun out. That 3810 is a really big gear still, but on the light end, the 3844 uh, was plenty light for some of the really steep, sandy slog climbs that were also part of the route. So I've just been absolutely thrilled with the capabilities of this new SRAM Explorer drivetrain. It comes in three levels, SRAM Red, SRAM Force, SRAM Rival. Highly recommend you go check it out. It's dedicated for gravel, whatever that means to you. Um, and you can select all the different options, mix and match from the collection to suit your specific needs and gravel riding goals. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you to Lily for editing and producing the show each and every week. Please leave a rating, leave a review, leave a comment, subscribe, and spread the word. Spread the word by word of mouth. We'll catch you next week.